Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have joined us for worship this morning, and we are so excited to have this chance to come together and do what we've just done, to praise the name of the Lord our God, and to come to his word and to understand his great love for us and his calling upon our lives. We trust that God will speak to you and has been speaking to you, even in these moments in the ways that you need to hear from him. And we trust that you will leave this place today encouraged and hopefully challenged to continue to lean into his grace and to share it with the world around us. We do have one more announcement uh, that we want to make this morning. As you may have noticed, we have not one, not two, but three Rose is up here at the front, and for those that attend here on a regular basis, we know that Rose is at the front means that there is a new life that has come into the world that we are celebrating, and so we are celebrating uh, two little boys and one little girl. Uh, Hudson Gregory Dalton was born on July 25th to Jeremy and Piper Dalton, and that's the grandson of Greg and Jill Prangy, so congratulations to Greg and Jill. Uh, Beatrice Evangeline Lance was born on July 30th to Josh and Alexandria Lance, and Alexandria and Josh are Alex and Josh are actually here today. So congratulations to them. Uh, and Breeze Wilson Hayes Laundry was born on July 27th to Corey and Samantha, and that's the grandson of Steve and Shannon Silver. So congratulations to all. Of you. We can clap for that. We're excited about these new lives that have come into the world, and uh, if you are related to those that were announced, come get your flowers today, including the vase. I just want to clarify, because that question is asked every time, do we get to keep the vase or do you want that? We do not want your vase. Please take it with you. We have so many vases, we think of different ways to experiment with them here at the church, so please don't tempt us. We are not scientists, okay? And so glass everywhere. Please take them with you. They're beautiful. They are for you. And in case you couldn't figure out the colors, the red roses are for the boys. The pink rose is for the girl. I believe that's right. Um, no one's saying no. So that's what we're going to go with. Brie roll. Definitive answer there. Pink for the girls. Pink for the girl. Red for the boys. So go ahead and grab those afterwards and congratulations. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to his word. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace for, for us. Lord, and we thank you that, Lord, though we fail you time without number, you continue to offer us forgiveness. You continue to offer us mercy. Lord, you continue to offer us chance after chance after chance. And Lord, you know that we need them. We are so grateful for the power and presence of your grace and how prolific it is. God, we pray that you would reveal to us the truth of your word now, Lord, that you would speak through these moments and that you would reveal to us who you are and what you expect of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yesterday, uh, I had the chance to participate in what is known as a tough mutter. Anyone ever heard of a tough mutter race before? For those of you that have not heard of the Tough Mudder race, it is really not so much a race as it is a, a personal abuse challenge that you put yourself through. And I didn't really know all about it. I just knew that there was like a 5K and a 10K. And so when I see that as a runner, that to me means race. And I can run all day long. Maybe not extremely fast, right, JJ? But I can run. And so I was like, look, I can do this thing. So I'd made a plan with a couple of guys here. One, um, Kyle Karam was one of them. And so me and Mr. Karam, the, the choir teacher, uh, went out with another gentleman, and we did this Tough Mudder race. And so we're waiting, and they don't release you all at once. They release you in waves. And so we stood in, like, this holding area for what seemed like forever, and finally they released us. But, and so we're all ready. And so we start jogging up, and then this, this trainer guy with the most fabulous mustache I have ever seen in my life stopped us, and he's like, hey, hold on a second. got to explain some things. And so he, he starts explaining how this is going to work. He's like, look, if you are here and you are ready to win a race, you are at the wrong place for the wrong thing. You cannot do the Tough Mudder by yourself. You can try, but you will end up riding to the hospital with other people that you will then have to be relying upon. So one way or another, throughout the course of this day, you are going to have to rely on the help of others to make it through without injury. 
And so there's some people that are there that are by themselves, and it's just me and Kyle Karam. I told Kyle, I was like, as we were walking in, I was like, Mr. Karam, this seems like the start of a really bad horror movie or a bad joke. He's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, a, a pastor and a choir director come to an endurance race. I was like, I would love to not experience the punchline today. And he's like, well, me too. So we're, we're talking to this guy, and the guy, the guy that's speaking up there, and he's talking to us with his fabulous mustache, says, all right, I, I want everybody to turn. And we turned, and we faced the flag, and, and we did the, the star-spangled banner. And he said, there's a reason that we just did what we did. Stands in the center. He's like, everybody take a knee. There's a reason that we just sang the, 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 the national anthem. He said, because right now, you all are under one flag. He said, it's really not even just about being an American. It's about being a decent human being. And you're going to go through this day, and you're going to need assistance. You cannot do this race by yourself. You cannot do the elements that are there by yourself. And so I want you to look to your left. And so I look over to my left, and there's Karim and the other guy that I came with. And I'm like, oh, sure, I know these guys. He's like, now I want you to look to your right. And I look over, and I just see these random guys that are in less shape than I'm in. And I'm like, this is not going well for me. And he's like, now I want you to look in front of you and behind you. And I'm like, all right, that's more like it. That guy's like 6'4", 200 pounds of solid rock muscle. I want that guy on my team. He's like, this is your team. Doesn't matter. Look, look around you. There are some that are weaker than you. There are some that are stronger than you. And you are going to need all of you to get through this. And I'm like, sure, whatever sounds good. So we take off on this race. And we start running. And they have us crawl through this mud and underneath this razor wire or, or barbed wire. And we crawl through. And they get us all good and muddy. And the very next obstacle we come to is this nine foot just flat surface wall that we've got to climb up. Well, they've just lubed us up. There's no way you're climbing up on that on yourself, right? Like you're covered in mud and nastiness. And so it's like, well, what do we do? And there's this guy that I had never seen. He actually was the out of shape guy to my right. And he's just standing there like this. He's like, come on, buddy. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, just step right here and I'm going to push you up over. Like, is that, is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. So I step on this random, I don't know his name today. I have no idea who he was or where he's from, but I stepped on his leg. He's like, now step on my shoulder. And I'm like, are you sure? I'm like a fully grown man. He's like, it's all right, go ahead. So I step on his shoulder and I get to the top. And then he's like, now help me. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So, but then I, there's another guy across from me. He's like, no, we can get him. Let's reach down there. So we reach down and we grab this guy and we yank him up to the top and he grabs the top and he's like, you can grab my shorts. And I'm like, I really would rather not. He's like, no, it's okay. So I reach down and I grab this guy, shorten his leg and I like pull him up to the side and he's like, oh, thanks, man. And we're like high five. And I was like, okay, I get this. We go through this race, and this is regularly what happens. We get into these things, and there's no way to get through them. You can try, and I saw people trying. There was three people that got there in these really nice white and purple Furman jerseys that went out like bats out of Hades, and they were determined that they were going to do it by themselves, and we left them standing at that wall. They might still be standing there. <laughs> they were really fast, but they couldn't get anywhere by themselves. And we get to this last event, and by the last, by the, one of the second to the last thing, you, if you ever watched the American Ninja Warrior, they've got that, that wall thing where you're like, ha, and if you've ever wondered if you can do it, you can't. But they, they, they've got this wall like where it ramps up, and you've got to run, and you've got to like step up this thing, and it's unnatural, and your body's like, no, and you've got to like watch the right point and jump. So I'm watching this, and there are, there are several different options, right? There's the first option, and the first option is I am man or woman enough to do this myself. You got to run and you jump at the right time and you grab this box and then you pull yourself up and you do it by yourself. And there are some people doing that. And I got to be honest, there is a, a part of me at one point in time that would have wanted to do it. But after I watched the first like beast mode individuals go and slam face first into the metal wall, it's like that's not for me. Like someone else will be preaching tomorrow because I will be in the hospital. I will see you all later. Then you have the second one. And the second one, they're running up and they're just jumping into the hands of waiting strangers, hoping they would grab them and pull them up. So I'm like, that one looks decent. But then I watch this girl. And this girl goes and she runs and she jumps and she grabs their hands and they grab her and then she flips her feet up. So her feet are up here and her head is down there. And these random strangers grab her by her feet and her legs and they just pluck her up and over. And I'm like, what are my other options? 
So I look next, and there are two ropes, and I watch, and it doesn't look any better. They're doing the same thing, except for rather than holding hands, they're holding ropes. Sure enough, throwing their feet up, they're pulling them up. I'm like, I don't know about this, guys. So I wait, and this guy goes, and he runs up there. Remember the 200-pound beefcake of muscle? Runs and jumps up there, and he's up there, and I was like, now is the time. The Lord has spoken to me. I want to grab that guy. Sir, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. And so I go running, and, and I watched Kyle do it first, and it, it was less than successful. And so I'm like, <laughs> all right, so the key is this. You can't look to the hands until you jump. So, like, you're kind of jumping blind. You're running, and once you hit this line on the wall, unnatural, you push off, and you just hope to God that your hands get where they need to go, and that these random strangers that I've only seen at the beginning of this race, that they're going to grab me, and they're not going to drop me to my injury and to my place at the hospital, right? So I go running, and I jump up there, and I throw my hands up, and bam, the guy got it. Got my hand here, and this little guy, he got my hand here. He's like, we got you. Now throw your feet up. And I'm like, I don't think so. He's like, no, that's the easiest way. Like, the more of you we can get a hold of, the better it is. I was like, bro, but if you don't, my head's hitting that ground down there and bouncing all the way down. I don't know about this. He's like, no, remember, we're one team. We're under one flag. Trust us. We've got you. And I'm like, okay. So I throw my leg up there, and sure enough, they grab that leg, they yank me up, they grab my leg, and they pull me over, and there I am. And I, it, we were... I, I don't know those guys from anything. I don't know those girls. I don't know. I, know. I knew actually one of the people that was with us, and I had met the other guy that morning. Had no idea who they were. We'll probably never see them again. But for a two-and-a-half-hour period of time, going through those obstacles in that area and that time, didn't matter what country we were from. It did not matter our political ideology. It did not matter what denomination of church we came from. It did not matter what school we came from. It did not matter our, our economic class. Nothing mattered but that we all somehow made it through the race. Was facing the challenges before us. And all of us needed one another if we were going to make it to the end of the race. Throughout Romans... Paul is dealing with one of the pressing issues of the day, and I would say that it's a pressing issue of the day throughout all of time. We like to find ways to subdivide and to make ourselves smaller groups of people and to categorize and and to say that these people are with us and these people are against us and and these are our people and those are their people. And, And we like to look for these ways to, whether we like it or not, it happens, right? We subdivide ourselves into different classes and different categories of people. But throughout Romans, Paul is telling us very clearly over and over and over again that the kingdom of God is not many nations, but one. It's not many peoples, but one. His conclusion is that in the light of the grace of Jesus Christ, all who believe are one people. That we look to our left and we look to our right. And not only are these people our teammates, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they may come from different places and have different perspectives and different ideas. But if we are confessing the name of Jesus and relying on his grace, we are all in the same boat, facing the same challenges, reaching out for the same hands. So I want to look this morning at Romans chapter 11 as Paul talks about this true one nation under God that comes in the form of his kingdom. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And it will be on the screen behind me as well. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appeared... Appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, 
But the others were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask you, did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough is offered as fruit, first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, so that, and, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, being the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Oh, who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For him and through him, for, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So we've got a lot of different things that, that are going on here. And, and Paul has sort of flipped the switch here as he's come into chapter 11. And chapter 9, 10, and 11, I, I'm going to submit to you, are all actually one subsection of Romans that are tied together. And if you remove any one of them from the others, you are going to miss the point. And so we're going to look at this and see what's going on. Because now Paul is turning from his attention. He spent so much time talking about the Jews that, that they don't hold a special place anymore. Yes, they were privileged that they received all of these things from God. But that God has now opened up avenues as he had always intended to do. So that now anybody who wants to confess Jesus, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is now available to everyone. And if the Jews don't like it, that's just too bad. So Paul's like, well, unfortunately, I've just done all of this. Now you may get the idea that Jews are no longer welcome, that these Israelite people, those that are true ethnic Israelites, aren't invited. But don't get it twisted. As we look throughout the Bible, we see a truth that Paul breaks down here in Romans chapter 11. And it's a very encouraging truth for us, I think, today in the age that we're in, in the era of, of what we're seeing in the world, and in the difficulties that stand before us. We need to remember this today. 
God's grace always maintains a remnant. God's grace always maintains a remnant. God is in the business of redemption. Rejection and reception are on us. See, we make a mistake when we look at God and we think that God has some people that he's just keeping at an arm's length. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about Romans 9, that it's not that God says, well, I just don't want these people. God has opened up the avenues. God has laid everything in front of us, and we can make the choice to either step into his grace or to stay out of it. That is on us. God is in the business of redemption and restoration, and his arms stand open wide to all who would believe. Whether or not we are rejected or received depends upon how we respond to God's invitation of grace. Paul asks the question, and he lays this out, did God reject his people? And again, as we talked a couple weeks ago, he's like, stop it. Absolutely not. To insinuate that God just gave up. Well, I tried what I, I, I did what I could. No, nothing I can do here. And we do sometimes act like that, don't we? That there are some people that, that have just gone too far. They've rejected God. They've just done too much. They've done too much wrong. And, and we get to that point where it's like as if God has just looked. He's like, well, I tried. Nothing I could do for that one. See ya. As if there are throwaway people to God in the world. Seems inconsistent with the overarching theme of Scripture. You know, and, and, it, and it would... There's an oft-repeated refrain for Paul that we see throughout Romans. He, he continues to ask questions concerning the perceived character of God. We want to make them about God's response to Israel, but he's really asking about the character of God. Does God just give up with people? Does God ever fail? Does, does God ever make plans that somehow just don't work out? Well, no, he doesn't. And so his plan to, to, to receive, the failure of his plan is the result not of God's failure, but the failure of the people to receive his grace. And the truth is it would take days for us to go back through scripture and to look for all of the examples in the Bible where God provides fresh opportunities for his people to experience a restored relationship with him. And to go back through all of the times throughout history where God rescued his people from the consequences of their sin. We like to focus on the Old Testament and see, look, look, God is just full of wrath and rage. And he's constantly destroying people over and over again. But how many times does God say, hey, look, I, I, I would gladly relent from this. How many times does God make avenues for things to get right? How many times does God, try, specifically thinking about his people, how many times does God go over and above to give more chances? We wouldn't. If I was God, I wouldn't. I'd be hitting that soft reset button over and over and over again. But that's not how Jesus works. That's not how God works. Then we come into the New Testament, and the gospel is overwhelming evidence of the lengths to which God has and will go to open up avenues for people to stand in his grace. Think about it. Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, God with us, God in the flesh, gave his life in response to the rejection, not, not just not just for, but in response to the rejection of his people in order that he might make a way for the restoration of all who would believe. God's in the redemption business. Rejection is on us. And the truth is this, that God is still in the saving business. Do we believe that? That's not a rhetorical question. Do we believe that Jesus is still in the business of saving people from their sins? Do we believe that God is still in the business of restoring broken people to fullness of life? That should impact the way that we look at the world around us. That should impact the way that we understand the gospel. That should be the filter through which we see everybody. If Jesus is still, if God is still willing to go the extra mile to make salvation available, do we have any right to do any other? God is still in the business of saving sinful people. And Paul himself is a clear example of the amazing grace of God. 
and the lengths to which God goes to save people. See, we read at the beginning where Paul says, I am an Israelite, by m- Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. We read that and Paul is saying, look, does God still save Israelites? Does God no longer saving people of Israel? Is it just for Gentiles that Jesus died? And Paul's like, that's just foolishness. I am an Israelite. And, and we can look at other books of Paul and we can see that as, for, as far as forms of rejecting God come, no one was better at it than Paul. Right? Paul was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. We don't know this for a fact, but Paul was alive when Jesus was crucified. There is a strong possibility he was at least in the, on the observation deck when they sentenced Jesus to death. We know for sure he would have been for it. Right? Yet God pursued Paul. Like it wasn't that God just passively waited for Paul. God pursued Paul as Paul was on the path to persecute other Christians. And and God called Paul out of his rebellion into redemption. This is the God we serve. This is the lengths to which his grace will go. And I think Paul provides for us a reminder that our testimonies are powerful evidence of God's continued work of redemption. Whether, whether great or small, the work that God does in us is the evidence of his power and presence in this world. And we need to not mitigate and marginalize that. You and I are part of the remnant of what God is doing in this world. When we think of the word remnant, we often think that remnants are just what's left over. It's what remains after we've taken what, what's actually valuable or useful and the rest is just this worthless thing to the side. What am I going to I'm going to tell you that I, I carpeted my, my dorm room for two years in college with remnants of carpet that were cut off of stuff that was ruined by a flood. I paid good money for that carpet. And it carpeted our room really well. It was nice carpet. Remnants aren't simply leftovers, but precious pieces that are of value and of use. And God says, Paul says to, to the the those that are reading in Romans, he says to us today, there is always a remnant. God always has a portion that he is protecting and saving and that he is working in over and over again. I love the example that Paul uses here because I think we make the same mistake as Elijah. I don't know that there's ever a period of time where this, where this example is not appropriate. Right? And if you look back in the Old Testament, you see Elijah, and he's, he's just had this amazing victory where he's killed thousands of prophets of Baal, and now he's running from his life because the king's wife has said, hey, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah, in his depression and discouragement, goes from this mountaintop to the bottom of this valley, and he says to God what you and I often say, I'm it. God, there's nobody else. I'm all alone. And maybe we're not as specific as that, right? But, but I've heard it before. Like, there's just so few of us now. The world is just so bad. God, God's just not working like he used to. And like it, it just seems like we're losing. Like there's just not, it, the world used, it used to be a Christian this, that, or the other. And God used to be and blah, blah, blah. Like and God, God is, looks at Elijah and says, what are you talking about? Elijah's like, look, I'm one of one. God, I'm it. And they're trying to kill me. And God's like, don't get it twisted, buddy. You're not one of one. You're one of 7,000 that have maintained their integrity. 7,000 that are still devoted to me. I'm reminded as I read this passage and as I think back through Scripture that it's never as bad as we think it is. And any time we think that God is on on the precipice of losing, that, that the God of creation is just on the edge of being overcome by the wickedness of the world, what that demonstrates is that we have a poor understanding or a poor perspective as we look to God. Is God really that small? That the wickedness of our world somehow in this age has found a way to overcome the greatness of God. That God is somehow surprised by what we see when we turn on our news or we look at Facebook or whatever it is that's causing our discouragement. We're we're never as alone as we think we are. It's so easy to get lost in the mess of the world. And even the failure of the church to begin believing that God is losing and that we're alone. But look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by God's grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. 
Now, that's important for us. See, we, we do have a role to play in what God is doing in the world. We have a role to play in sharing the saving grace of Jesus. But, but don't, don't be confused. Our work is not what saves or loses anybody. The efficacy of the work of God is not seen in human activity, but in divine action. God is still at work in our sin-soaked world. Let me say that one to you one more time. God is still at work in our sin-soaked world. All is not lost. God is not surprised, and God is not on the edge of losing. God's got a plan. Are we willing to trust him and walk with him in it? Now, sure, God, verses 7 through 10 show us clearly that God won't force his grace on us. If we want to go our own way, he'll let us. But there is always a remnant. God is always doing what God alone can do. And salvation is always happening, even when we may not see it. But Paul goes on. We understand that God is always doing the saving work. There's always a remnant. Salvation is always happening. And and Paul shows us something that's important for us to remember this morning, that no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. It is impossible, it is impossible for us to fall so far that God deems us unsavable. And Israel provides us a master's class on rejecting the grace of God and how far one can fall, yet grace still remained for Israel. That's what Paul is talking about here, right? He spent all of these chapters, even if we go back to chapter 1, Paul has talked over and over again about how how these delineations of Jew and Gentile are no longer as important as they once were and that, that we are now all one people under grace and that the Israel that really matters is spiritual Israel. It's people that have accepted God's grace by faith and that just because you were born into ethnic Israel does not mean that you are part of the salvific plan of God. Well, he spent so much time doing that that he's, it seems like Paul's a little worried that these Gentile readers are going to get the big head. Well, now we are the special people. And God's, they had their turn, and they missed the boat, and they rejected God, and they killed the Savior. And so now it's our turn. You know, I was actually watching, last week we watched uh, Fiddler on the Roof. At, at our house. And it's not something that we talk about that much in our culture. It's not something that's as big for us. But it, it struck me when, when the, the, the sheriff or the constable, I guess is what he's called, was meeting with his supervisor. And he's like, hey, look, like, these are good people. And he's like, what, do you love these Jesus killers, these Christ killers? Well, that's not how we think anymore. It should have never been how we think. God had a plan. And lest we miss it, the Romans played a part in killing Jesus. It was a Jew and Gentile combined effort to kill the Savior of the world. But, but there is this, this mentality that can seep into us, this anti-Semitic th- message that we can pull from, from the Bible if we're not careful. Even the great Martin Luther fell into that for a while. But it's not that God no longer loves them. Once again, we don't get to look at them and say, well, that group of people, God really, he tried, but they just couldn't do it. Not for them. Paul's like, no, there's, there's no one that's beyond the reach of God's grace. Including them, they killed Jesus. And as they did, what did Jesus do? He offered forgiveness. Christ, as they were killing them, him, said, Father, forgive them. If Christ can forgive them for his crucifixion, do we have the authority to hold it over anyone's head? And if Christ died for those people, Is there anyone that's going to be disqualified? I would submit to you that no. That if Jesus, as they are killing him, can forgive those people before they have even asked for forgiveness, that there's no one that's disqualified from his grace. If you can think of anyone who is beyond the grace of God, if you can think of anyone any person, any group of people who are beyond the grace of God, you've misunderstood God's grace or you've believed the wrong gospel. 
There's anyone in your mind that, like, Jesus didn't die for them. Well, Jesus can't save those people. All oh, those people have just gotten too much. That's too far. God can't save them. If you, if you believe that, you've misunderstood God's grace or you've believed the wrong gospel. Romans 5, 8. Doesn't it say to us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as it goes down to verse 10, it says, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. In chapter 10, he continues to, to show that God continues to reach out his hands. And he's talking specifically about Israel here to obstinate and disobedient people. Just because one has rejected the grace of God does not qualify them then from receiving it. This is how grace, by definition and design, works. It's not something that you earn. It's something that you accept, and God has offered it freely. Aren't you grateful that Jesus died for, quote, obstinate and disobedient people? Aren't you glad that the grace of God is specifically designed for people who can't get right on their own? Aren't you glad that, it's not, that your salvation is not predicated upon your ability to, to follow the path precisely every day of your lives? Maybe you could make it on your own. But for me, it's just like that race yesterday. If that big dude wasn't up at the top to pull me over, homie was not making it over the wall. I was going to have to walk around. And the truth for each of us is that we've got Christ waiting, reaching out his hands, and he's saying, I've got you. Just jump up here and grab my hand. Stop trying to do it on your own. I will pull you over. I will help you. I have, I've been here. I've got you. I'm waiting, and I'm holding up my hands. And you can keep trying to do it on your own all you want, but I'll still be here when you're ready to come over. That's the grace of God. He continues to make it available. And the riches of God's grace continue to be revealed as his salvation continues to be made available even in our time. Even Israel's abdication of their privileges as the people of God revealed avenues God had always intended to open for all people to experience his great grace. And Paul talks about here about their transgression leading to loss. Look in verse 12. He says, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. Well, what is he talking about there? Well, transgression refers to rebellion against God's revelation. Both rebellion to God's revealed law through his word and Jesus. Paul's saying, look, they went and did their own thing their own way. They ignored what God said to them and the way that God opened to them. <clears throat> and, and, and as a result, it led to loss. Well, loss is a military firm term referring to defeat. They were fighting a losing battle. There was no way they were going to achieve salvation and righteousness on their own. And it can be seen throughout their history and even in our own lives. Anytime we fight to try to make it on our own, we are fighting a losing battle. But their transgression and loss demonstrated the pervasive and ubiquity of God, pervasiveness and ubiquity of God's great riches. God's riches were revealed to be available to all. And the riches of his grace are seen in the extension of his salvation to the seemingly unsavable, the unbelieving Gentile world, and those that were part of Israel. Paul says, look, the reason that I'm offering you the gospel in the first place is because I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Their rejection resulted in you receiving the gospel. And I, I just thought about this the week, this week. It's not, the, it's not the availability of the gospel. God planned and he was going to make that available. But you understand that Paul initially was not going to speak to the Gentiles. You go through Acts at the beginning. Every time Paul reaches a town, he goes into the synagogues and he preaches to the Jews. And there comes a point where they fight against him enough and Paul says, fine, I'm going to the Gentiles from here on out. The very reason that Paul is preaching... To the Gen this Gentile audience, the very reason he's writing to these Roman Gentiles is because the Jewish people have rejected his message. The rejection of the Jews made available the reconciliation to the Gentiles through Paul. But the grace of God remained available to all. And Paul, Paul is telling us 
that though people may wander, God's grace remains available. That neighbor that you have who's never darkened the door of a church, that neighbor that does things that you are ashamed to even mention, God's grace is available to them. That friend who is angry with God and says they no longer believe, God's grace is available to them. That family member who's abandoned the faith, who's chosen to wander and do their own thing their own way, that family member who's living in self-destructive patterns of unrighteousness, God's grace is available to them. You see, we don't decide who is deserving and who's not. Our job is simply to proclaim the amazing and unreasonable grace of God to all who might believe and to watch and let God do what God does. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. We need to remember that it's not about what we did in the first place. That it's not that we received salvation and then we get to look at it and say, oh, we got this because we were more worthy than them. See, they lost it, right? That's the temptation that Paul is pointing against. It's not that Israel lost it and now you gained it and that, that you're now somehow better than them. No, 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 no. Your, your redemption and your salvation is all contingent upon Christ. And the life that we are to live, our life comes through continued connection to Christ. Don't get the big head and lose sight of where your life comes from. Now, Paul here is talking about these wild ones and broken branches. And it's interesting because what, what often would happen is <clears throat> these wild ones were not just simply uh, wild branches that they would go cut off of a, a wild olive tree and take and then hook to this new one. That wasn't usually how it worked. What it was is these wild ones were actually shoots. They were what we would call volunteers. And they would fall into the ground and they would be, begin to grow up. And rather than going in through there with a weed whacker and just cutting them all down like you or I would... The, the gardener would go in occasionally and he would pick up these, these new trees, these wild trees that had fallen, these volunteers that were doing it on their own that probably weren't going to survive. And he would take these branches and he would put them in, into, he would cut a hole and he would put them into the new tree and he would bind them to it. And then that, 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 those roots from that tree would grow into the original tree and that new tree would grow and begin new growth. And so a branch that was maybe empty could now have new branches that were provi providing more fruit. It was a way for, for them to increase, increase the productivity of the tree. But something that's interesting is it wasn't just these branches that they could put up. Sometimes a branch would have broken off. And so what they would do is they'd put a couple of these wild branches in there, and then they would take the original branch and they would push it shut, and they would seal them all together, and then all of them would grow as one new branch producing these new fruits. And both of them had space and a place. That there were none of these branches that did not have a place if the gardener chose them and put them in. But it was all about the choosing of the gardener. The ability of the branch to stay connected. Our life comes through our relationship with and reliance upon Christ. We don't support the root. It supports us. And the connection of all is a gift of grace by faith alone. We must continue to humbly hold to the grace of God by faith, understanding that we are undeserving, but that God still offers his gift. And when we understand that we were given grace by grace, that salvation is by grace, not by anything we've done, that will impact how we then approach God and perceive and treat others. Whether we experience God's kindness or sternness then is dependent upon how we respond to his grace. And kindness, is, it talks about that in verse 22. Kindness is marked by acts of generosity, consideration, and rendering of assistance. And sternness is the state of being unyielding and showing disobedience or disapproval. Sternness is experienced when we choose to rebel against God and go our own way. Our rebellion will result in the fruits of our unrighteousness. But God's kindness is available to all who will humbly accept it. God is exceedingly generous and compassionate, providing grace and abundance when we choose to receive it from his hands. And God continues to make space for all who accept his grace, both the wild ones and the broken branches. 
Now we come to this end section, and I'll be honest with you, I did not enjoy looking through verses 25 through 36. Because Paul seems to flip the script, and so it's what does Paul mean to the, by this? But Paul says something at the beginning that's important. He says in verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. And then he goes on to explain part of this mystery, but that in the end he says it's really God's business, so whether or not you understand is inconsequential. It's like a mystery sandwich. Here there's this mystery, and I'm going to explain a little piece of it, but if you don't get it, that's okay. You don't have to. So what does he mean by this? Well, the overarching theme is this. God's, has, God's plans and promises never fail. There are several theories as to what Paul means in verses 25 through 32. And it all hinges upon what is meant by Israel. Some scholars believe that Paul is referring to, quote, spiritual Israel. That he's not referring to simply ethnic Israel at this point, but that he's pivoted, and now he's talking about spiritual Israel. And Paul talked about that earlier in Romans, that spiritual Israel are not those that were born by blood into Israel, but those that are children of the promise, those that come in by faith in Jesus. This would include all who accept the saving grace of God by faith. Others believe that Paul is referring to the elect or the remnant of Israel proper, the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, who will be saved. This includes an expectation that when Christ comes again, many more Israelites from ethnic Israel will be saved. And still others believe that Paul is referring to ethnic Israel as a whole, because he says, at this time, all of Israel will be saved. Interestingly enough, they think that God's plan is to save every Israelite that ever lived throughout all of history. I tend to think it's simpler than that, than any of the above. Paul highlights what he's been saying over and over and over again through Romans. That those who wander from God will experience the consequences of that choice. But... That just as God is now saving Gentiles, he is still saving Jews as well. Paul is putting a bow on this section of Romans from chapters 9 to 11. That yes, God chooses us as an act of his own grace, by, by his own authority. That we are all undeserving. But God chooses and makes his mercy available to all. That's what he says as he concludes this section in verses 33 and following, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's almost this, this nice little wrapping it up that you see from in chapter 9 where it's like God chooses us by his grace regardless of what we've done. And, and, and we, don't get, we don't get to determine who God makes that grace available. And Paul wants to make a reminder at the end as he's gone through and said, hey, you have a responsibility. You have to accept God's grace. And God continues to make his grace available to all who would accept it. And then Paul says, look, when, when God went about making his grace available, he didn't ask for your opinion. He wasn't really concerned with what you thought about his grace, how his grace should work. And that remains true today. It doesn't matter if God's grace makes sense for you. It doesn't matter. It's not for you to make God's grace more accountable and acceptable and more reasonable. It's not up to us to make God's grace more sensible in our cultural, social understanding. Our only job is to accept it and to share it. That's it. We don't get to make any determinations beyond that. What God is thinking and doing in our world is and always has been beyond our understanding. And he didn't ask for our opinions. It is the most glorious mystery that God invites those who were rebellious, those who were his enemies to become members of his family and citizens of his kingdom. And you know, we can look to our left. As a matter of fact, go ahead, look to your left right quick. And look to your right. Now, those are your family members, so go ahead and look behind you at other people that you're not related to. You see those people in this room? There are none of them in here whom Jesus did not die for. There is no one in this room or no one connected to anyone in this room that is beyond the grace of God's grace, the reach of God's grace. 
And our job is to open that grace to all who would believe it. And if we had a mirror, I would show it to you because the person looking back at you is in need of God's grace. But thankfully, God continues to make his grace available. And in his unfathomable reach, his unfath- the unfathomable rich mystery of the gospel is that God continues to make his mercy available to a sinner. And as Paul would say, of whom I am the chief. Praise God for his great grace. And praise God that he has called all of us to be a part of his one great nation, his one great kingdom under God and part of his family of faith through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father God, I thank you so much for the riches of your grace and the lengths to which you go to make your grace available. As we turn our attention now to communion, to remember your grace which came through the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross, may we be humbled. May we receive it ourselves, but may we be reminded that that grace is not just for us, but it is for us to carry out into a world in desperate need of your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, I'd invite the deacons to come forward and join me here at the front as we prepare to come together for communion. Here at First Baptist Church, we believe in what is called open communion. What that means is just what it sounds like, that communion is open to all who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to to partake. As the trays are passed, we invite you to take the cup, which contains both the, the juice and the bread. And we invite you to take it and to participate with us, first with the bread and second with the cup. Because we believe that Christ... Christ's kingdom is open to all who believe, and it is not ours to distinguish whether you are qualified or not, but that is something that is between you and Jesus. So we invite you to join us at the table tonight or this morning as we celebrate the amazing grace of God. Father God, I thank you so much for the grace that you have offered to us in the work and person of Jesus Christ. I pray that in these quiet moments as we sing this song about your amazing grace, as we receive these elements and then take them together, that you would remind us that we are one body, that we are one family, and that even with the difficulties and the struggles we see in this world, that your saving grace is still at work in us, for us, and through us by the power and presence of your spirit. God, speak to us now in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen.